For those of you who are going to the uh, Sunday school program, you're welcome to be dismissed. We're only going to be about 18 paces away, so that's not too terrible. Um, thank you for those of you who are teaching this, and for those of you who are attending, pay attention. They put a lot of work in. For the rest of you, you are, whether stuck by your own uh, desire or because of cultural uh, pressure, you're stuck in here with me until, uh, for John chapter 4. So I would invite you to join me there. As we continue our walk through the Gospel of John, there are numerous stories that we will cross into that depict realities of salvation that you and I have come to know, but perhaps have never seen fully illustrated. One of the wondrous things about Jesus is his wisdom that completely bypasses everyone's expectations. When he speaks to people, he does not speak to them as the manner that we would. We have a singular goal in mind when you go into a conversation, right? If you're a proud person, your goal is to wait for them to stop speaking so that you can respond and impress them with your intelligence. One of the marvelous things about Christ is through humility, he causes people to reconsider everything that they assumed. And he never responds the way somebody like I would. I would look at this woman and I would say, hey, let me, let me show you the way that, that eternal life would work. Let me show you what love of neighbor is all about, why Samaria doesn't get along with Jerusalem, the whole history there that goes back literally eight centuries at that point. I would have tried all these manners, and maybe that's why I fail so much. Christ doesn't do any of that. When she comes out to him, the, he doesn't go, you know what, you're from Samaria, I'm going to share What's about to happen with you? And this marvelous story of, of redemption and the gospel and what's going to happen in the history of mankind and the fact that you are staring at the person on whom all of history has turned. You're standing at the fulcrum of all of redemption and you don't even know yet. No. He just asks her for some water. And he knows that it's going to instigate a response from her. She says... Why are you talking to me? <clears throat> Jews and Samaritans have no dealings with one another. The divide between our peoples are too great to bridge a conversation. We live at a time where we are becoming, unfortunately, used to political division. What we live in is nothing compared to the division between Samaria and Jerusalem. May get there at some point, but the reality is they had gotten to a point in their culture where they do not even speak if they are drawing water from the same well. And so she is confused. Why would you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? And then Jesus, knowing the gift of God, returns it right back to her and says, that's an interesting response. If you even knew the gift of God and who I am, you would have asked me, the guy standing in a desert without a bucket at a deep, deep well for a drink. Now, of course, that's going to elicit a response from her, a response of somewhat confusion, but also a response of just how in the world could you offer me something? I hold all the cards. 
I've got a bucket and a rope. You've got nothing. This is a 106-foot deep well. What are you going to do? Are you, and this is where we were talking last time, are you greater than our father Jacob? Little does she know the answer to that question is yes, yes, a thousand times yes, but he doesn't even answer that. He doesn't come back with what I would have come back with, which is, of course I'm greater than your father Jacob. His grandfather was Abraham, and I was before, excuse me, I am before Abraham was. Of course I'm greater than him. I'm the creator of heaven and earth. I made the man who made the man who made the man who made this well. What is 106 feet to me? He answers her in verse 10, just by way of uh, reminder, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you something much better than this well. Living water, flowing water, a spring. Something where you do not have to draw anymore. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing. Let's stop there for a second before you read the rest of that sentence. You have nothing. As she comes to it, everything that she knows, everything she's familiar with, you have nothing to offer me. I have everything to offer you. And isn't that the way the proud see salvation before it occurs? And those who are ill-advised imagine that they have something to offer God, and maybe then salvation is owed to us. We don't have something to offer God. That's not how it works. When we come to salvation, it is not because God is in some great need of us that we must carry out something that he is unable to carry out in life. Same thing with worship. We do not worship God because there is something lacking in God. We worship God because there is nothing lacking in him. It is quite the opposite. We offer him our lives, not because he needs our lives, but because our lives are owed to him. Because he already purchased them. And here, this woman's response is the same as all who have not yet come to salvation. It is, you have nothing to offer me. Maybe I have some stuff to offer you. I have a bucket. I have a rope. There's water. You're thirsty. You just said you wanted something to drink. And now you're saying that I should have asked you for a drink when you can't even water yourself. The woman says to him, you have nothing with which to draw the water. The well is deep. Where would you get that living water? Where would it come from? Are you greater than our father Jacob? That's usually how the English translation goes. That's because in English, this translation is very difficult. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Is actually how that's phrased. In the negative, with the assumption of no as the answer. You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? You would have to be greater than him. He gave us this well, and he even drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. All of Israel, all of Samaria, traces its history back to Jacob. Jesus said to her something I never would have said. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
this woman's still missing the entire story. And this is where we stop right in the middle of a thought last time. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I'll just add a paraphrase because it's annoying and I don't like it. Is she getting the point? No. No, she's not getting her point. She's not figuring out what in the world's going on, but she is saying, well, if you're going to promise something that will make my life easier, sounds great. Sounds great. Isn't that what we all want? If there's water that's going to become mine that will always flow, that I don't have to draw and I don't have to work, do work for, wonderful. And again, many people who are sharing the gospel would probably shortchange the gospel at this point. Is everything in your life going wrong? Follow Christ and it'll get better. Is that the whole story? No. It might actually get worse. It might get more difficult. Depends on what time you live and what situation you live in. And so Jesus, knowing this, does not stop the conversation there. He changes the whole thing. He's like, oh, you want that water? Okay, go get your husband. It's just like to the rich young ruler. I've kept all these commandments and more since my youth. I don't break commandments, the rich young ruler would say to Jesus. And Jesus was like, okay, great. Then try this, this, and this. He said, oh, no, I've done all of those things. And Jesus says, okay, you lack one thing. Give away all your possessions to the poor. And you will have eternal life in heaven. Was Jesus telling you that that's how you become saved? No. What was he doing? He was showing him his sin. He was showing him what God he actually served. If you want money more than me, don't bother coming to me. What is it worth? What if it did cost you all the money for the testimony of Christ? What if it did cost you your comfort, your life, your friends, your parents, your children? What if following Christ cost you everything? That's what Jesus is getting at with her. Fine, go call your husband. The very shame for which you are out here without anybody else in the hot of the day. Go call your husband and then come here. The woman answered and says, I don't have a husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five. And the one you now have is not your husband, what you have said is true. Now, before we get to her response, what is Jesus doing here? Because he's got a very intentional goal in mind. He has a very specific aim that he's getting at. What has she been doing with water? But coming here time and time again and trying to fulfill a natural need. She's been doing the same thing with relationships. She's been doing the same thing with marriage, with comfort in living, five different husbands, and now trying out somebody else. It's the same thing she is doing with coming to the well over and over and over again, trying to fulfill needs and desires in natural ways without any thought to eternity. And so Jesus calls her mind to the same thing. Go get your husband. She says, no, I don't have one. He says, yeah, you've had five. The one you're currently living with is not your husband. It's not calling her to say, if you just figure out your marriage problems, everything will be well. Or if you just figure out your watering problems, everything will be well. No, he's, he's laser focused on the problems that she's pursuing. She wants 
everlasting results, but she does not want it to come from a source other than her. She wants comfort and she wants relationship, but she keeps trying to find it in natural things that do not satisfy. And it happens all the time when we look for spiritual answers in physical sources. Do not try to pull from your spouse things that belong to God. Do not try to pull from your family the joys that only come from Christ. You will be sorely disappointed in their failures and yours. Do not try to pull from your own righteousness that which belongs to Christ alone. Expecting perfection from yourself leads to disappointment, not success, and not joy in the Christian life. Expecting perfection from other Christians will lead you to become alone. Expect to have sin present in your life and theirs. And it won't surprise you. Expect from this world evil, not a culture that serves the Lord. There's never been a culture in the world that served the Lord. Expect that man in his naturalness and in his meanness will produce evil. And then when you look at your life and see But for the grace of God, there go I. Unless God had graced me, so too would have I been caught up in all of those things. Nothing good in me dwells. The rivers of water that are living life inside the Christian are not because we have fixed everything. It is because that is the nature of following Christ. So Christ is pointing this out, the same thing that exists with her habits for pulling water out of the well, the same things that exist for her relationship after relationship after relationship, trying to solve eternal supernatural problems with temporal natural solutions. Never works. Never works. And so she says, this is a great thing for the Gospel of John, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. This is a great thing because this is actually better than what Nicodemus came up with. The best thing that Nicodemus and all the Sanhedrin, if you remember back in the previous chapter, that they could come up with, we perceive that you are a man from God. We're not going to give you any status higher than that. We just know that nobody can do the works that you're doing unless God is with them. So we'll give you that. We'll give you that you're a man from God. And what is this Samaritan woman who has literally had a 30-second conversation with them already established for this Jewish guy that she shouldn't even be talking to. I can perceive not only that you're a man from God, but that you are a prophet. There hasn't been a prophet in Israel in 450 years. How would she know? It's because Christ used the division between their peoples to illustrate supernatural, personal, definitive knowledge. The only place that can come from is God, and the only type of people that God reveals such things to are prophets. Now, you have to understand a Samaritan mind for a second. They don't have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, none of those in their scriptures. Those were all Israelite prophets. They looked only to the Pentateuch. And so when she says, you are a prophet, you have to hear something much higher than Elijah, something much higher than Elisha. You have to hear the prophet that is promised in the Pentateuch. There's only one, 
that there would one day come a prophet after the, uh, after the kind of Moses was. She's able to perceive that he is not just any prophet. In her mind and in her theology and in her people, there hasn't been a prophet since Moses. Which means for her to claim that based on what he's offering and what he's saying, it's bringing her straight back to Moses, who too in the desert split a rock open for living water and provided things that they could not provide, food with which to eat, water with which to drink, shoes that wouldn't wear out. These things came from heaven, and the only type of person who has ever done that is a prophet like Moses. She sees that he's the Messiah. If you don't believe it, look at her next responses. She says, sir, verse 19, I perceive that you are a prophet. So she wants to get her question in. The biggest question between Israelites and Samaritans is who is actually worshiping God in the right place. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, now he spins the whole thing around again. He says, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Out of 39 books of the Old Testament, they only had five. You truly do worship the right God, but you do not fully know him. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is indeed from the Jews. Jesus answers her question, but then provides for her the reality of the timeline in which she's sitting. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Basically, she's saying to him, you should tell me plainly what's happening. Because when Messiah comes, he's going to inform us of all things. Moses did not hold back. He told us straight away what God required. He told us straight away, and, and we hid behind that tent of meeting so that we wouldn't have to behold the face of God. We asked that Moses would intercede for us. We know that when Messiah comes, he will do the same thing. He will intercede for us and he will tell us all things plainly, just like this. And so what is the first thing Jesus responds with? Someone read it out. It's right there in verse 26. I who speak to you am he. I am greater than Jacob. I am the prophet that was to come after the form of Moses. I am the one who can give you what you need from thirst, what you need from relationship, what you need from this world. And almost as if it was intentional, just then his disciples returned. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one says, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They were at least smart enough to know that they should put their foot in their mouth before they speak. Something I've been working on for many, many years. Still can't figure it out. Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar. Notice that. Notice that. 
she leaves her water jar. Those little things happen in narratives all the time. They're not accidents. That doesn't even seem important to the story, does it? The thing that she came out to do, the thing that she offered him a drink for, the thing that she bragged about, the thing that she says solves the problem for both me and you, you can't even meet my needs. I can meet your needs. You're not even supposed to speak to me. When she goes back to the town, John makes explicit reference to say she left the water jar there at the well. Don't need it anymore. She went away into the town and said to the people, and there we have another reverse. The woman who comes to the well alone because she cannot stand to be with the other women of the town because of her shame and ridicule now goes back and announces in the public space, I have found the one that we've been waiting for. He's told me everything about me. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. You have to understand what just happened. The term Christ, the term Messiah are Jewish terms. To ask in Sychar, a town in Samaria, if the person that we, can, that we have just identified is the Christ, you have to understand what that means. That means, as she's walking in a town, folks, we got it wrong. And the Jewish scriptures are right. They forecasted the coming of one who is called Christ. And if that's true, not only have we missed him so far, we've missed most of the scriptures. He told me everything I did. He told me salvation is of the Jews, which means, folks, we're worshiping in the wrong place. We've got the wrong scriptures, and we don't even recognize that the Christ is here yet. Can you imagine that he is here? In order for her to say that, she has to undo everything that she expected. Not only leave the water jar behind, she has to leave her tradition behind. Everything that she has known about this, expectation and otherwise, including where she has worshipped since she was a little girl. Everything has to be undone because Christ, having come, demonstrated who he is. Verse 31, John explains to us, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, <laughs> and now he turns around. So, again, if I was there, I would have been like, thanks. No problem. <laughs> Verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't even know about. And so he does the exact same thing with his disciples. And this is one of the greatest things about John. The same rules apply for the Samaritans. The same rules apply for the Jews. Even though salvation came from the Jews, the Jews do not own it. It It's important for us to understand. John, as a Jew, is writing that so that we don't get in our minds, as a Jewish guy, he's just criticizing that the Samaritans were wrong. No, those who are closest to Jesus as disciples, also wrong. I have food you don't even know about it. And just to illustrate the fact that they missed that as well, John, in this crowd that doesn't get it, writes about himself. The disciples said to one another, has someone brought something to eat? Jesus said to them, or excuse me, they they asked him, has someone brought you something to eat? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I send you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What is he saying to them? They just wanted to bring lunch. And he turns it into something that is a short parable about how things grow into the world. He's describing for them the period of time in which they're living. Same exact topic he just spoke to the woman about. He's explaining to them, look, others have worked before you. There's job yet still to be done. We understand that in the history of Revelation, you do not have the gospel without the Old Testament. It's not possible. There had to be promises to be fulfilled. There had to be prophecies made. There had to be faithful men and women who did not see the promises fully develop that were waiting for the day in which we live. And so Jesus explains to them, look, you're not sitting at the beginning of something. You're sitting at the harvest time. Something grand has been done well before you. Men and women who have gone before, who have done this work for all these thousands of years, leading up to this moment where harvest is ready. I don't know how many of you like gardens and like to grow them. I've planted way more gardens than I've harvested. (laughs) I usually say when the scriptures say that someone plants and another waters and another harvests, I go, well, I'm the one who plants and the deer are the ones who harvest, and that's very annoying. But the reality is you do not come to the time of harvest without the planting. You do not come to the enjoyment of the fruits of labor unless you are working beforehand. And what Jesus is saying is all those prophets who have come before us, all that work who has gone before us, all the wandering in the wilderness, all of the defeat of the Philistines, the Amorites, the Edomites, and everything that's gone before, even the things we read this morning, Isaiah 34, all that must who have come to pass. All of it was leading up to the hope where the harvest of God would become plentiful throughout the world and save not just those in Jerusalem and Judea, but also Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And if it is true that they're living in that timeline, they should react just the same as this woman from Sychar. If he has food, that we don't know about, and all we're focused on is a meal that we're going to have to just eat again. It's one of the great and frustrating things about food is you can eat to your fill, and then it goes away, and you're going to have to eat again. You cannot just eat a singular meal that just sustains you through your life. You cannot drink a water that just sustains you for all eternity. You cannot just have a relationship that will meet all of your needs for all of eternity, and any of these come from something other than God. He is the source of all of this. And so Jesus uses the exact picture with them the same way as the people of Israel were getting that picture when they were wandering the wilderness. They got both pictures, didn't they? When they were wandering in the wilderness, we don't have any water here. It's in the desert. Moses, at the direction of God, splits the rock open and water comes gushing out. Very unusual thing not a natural thing, an unusually supernatural thing to depict God as the source of such things. 
What about for bread? What about for food? As the people are going to come and want to be fed by Jesus, they're going to want to make him king here before chapter 6 wears out. And Jesus is going to respond, no, not interested. You only want me to be king because I gave you free food and because that food's going to have to keep on being replenished and you're looking at it as a great source of free food. I refuse. And he refused to feed them the next day. Most people don't talk about that part of the story. They were still hungry. He says, yeah, I'm the bread from heaven. I'm the water of life. Now those claims really start punching, don't they? I'm the one who has promised. I am before Abraham was. I am the light of the world. And as it continues down this path, this salvation that he is depicting is beyond any drink of water, any food, any temporal solution to any natural need. This is why it pains me so much when I hear people talk about the gospel as a temporal solution to natural needs. Are you not really happy? Well, follow Jesus and you'll be happy. Well, that may be true, but that's not the point of the gospel. Nor is that the message of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is you are born to glorify the one who made you. Of course nothing's working out without him. Of course your worldview is garbage without him. Of course you are still thirsty. Of course you are wanting righteousness that you cannot develop no matter how many rules you make for your life. Of course your sin is still overtaking you. Christ himself died to remit your sins and to give you a new life that you may live it now through the grave in the resurrection and into eternity. A life that does not break and a life that does not stop and a life that is certainly abundant and free. This is what the prophet Isaiah promised. Come and drink from the springs of the water of life without payment. John, writing the book of Revelation, says the same thing in the last chapter of the Bible as we lay it out. Come, anyone who is thirsty, and drink from the springs of the water of life without payment. Don't pay me for this. Don't think that you can purchase it. We see it in the book of Acts where a magician tries to come up to the disciples of God and purchase the ability to use Jesus' name. And what was the response? It wasn't, well, that's not exactly how it works. Let me share the gospel with you. No, go and perish with your money. Look at the effects of this woman. Verse 39. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Now, if you've been following along in the Gospel of John, you know that John is essentially setting up a legal standard for this. Multiple testimonies, multiple witnesses. John the Baptist, the Father, the Spirit, the works and the words of Christ himself. His own memory, his knowledge of himself, his disciples' witnesses, the disciples of John, what they have witnessed, now the woman in Samaria. Later on, we're going to find out Nicodemus as well became a follower of Christ, but was too ashamed to tell anyone. This woman becomes a follower of Christ and immediately saves her whole town. How much can be accomplished 
when we allow Christ to be Lord of not only our life, but also our shame. Not try to hide who we were without him, but to say glory to Christ for what he has done in spite of who I am, that he may be glorified in my weaknesses and in my need. Look at the effect of this attitude. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She said, he told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer of what, because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of Samaria. Is that what they said? Okay, all right. Okay, we'll all admit, the Savior of the Jews. Okay. Judea? What we're familiar with? He's the Savior that all the people who share my ethnic line back to Jacob should look to. The Savior of all of those who want him? The Savior of all those who think he's a good answer to some of their interesting questions in their mind? No. The Savior of the world. Why? Because he made it. Everything goes back to the prologue of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, yes? And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, All things were made through him, and there was not a single thing that was made that wasn't made through him. Why is he the savior of the Jews? Because he called them. Why is he the savior of the Samaritans? Because he created them. Why is he the savior of the world? Because he made it. They immediately see that he's not just our savior, and it's not that the Jews just got it right. They throw off everything, and John is using this picture to really drive it home to his Greek-reading audience that he is not here just to save nice Jews. And he is not here just to save shameful Samaritans. He's even here to save you. You, who live in a land that nobody at that time even knew about, who speak a language that did not exist, who live in a country that hates God, who live amongst a people with unclean lips, you who yourself have unclean lips, an impure mind, an impure motives, and sinful intentions and actions and desires, he is still your savior and mine. And the Samaritans got it before his disciples. The Samaritans got it before the Sanhedrin, before the Pharisees, before anyone. Nobody had identified him as this yet. John has been setting up this all the time to surprise us with the reality of who the first people are that recognize his nature. It's a loose woman from a little hamlet 
in another country. You should hear nothing but hope from that. That there doesn't exist a place where Christ is not the Messiah, the Savior of the world. There is not a place that you can go. Someone told me that they were studying and meditating over Psalm 139 this week and reminding themselves what it says in there often. As David learned towards the end of his life, there's no place he could go, whether in the wilderness or far away, that he would not find that God still dwelt with him. That kind of lesson is expanding itself into the world in the ministry of Christ, and we have become so used to it that we think nothing of it. We are worshiping the God of Israel in deposit. We are worshiping the creator of the world with 60 friends. And we know that God himself did not just give us a book, but he imbued it with his power. He taught his people without them realizing it, how to even recognize his authority in his word. And he promises to be in their midst when they intend this. Which means God is not sitting in Israel on a mountain in Jerusalem. He's in the fellowship of his people, working, working miracles that bring from them fruits of the spirit that they did not have before because he is working on their hearts. Let me tell you a miracle I prayed for for many years that I did not have and I saw others have and I was, I'm not even going to hide this, I was jealous that they had it. I know in my past I had no natural love of the word of God. None. It was something that I was familiar with from Sunday school since I was a young boy. And that familiarity had breeded carelessness in me. And I remember reading it and going, oh yeah, I've heard this part, and then tuning in. Much to my shame, even now as I stand here. That was my standard interaction with the word of God when I was 19 years old. And it was my jealousy that God used to grow me up. And I'm very surprised about that. And I'm frustrated about that. I wish it was something that I could say, in me there dwelt this hunger to follow God just for the sake of following God. No, I saw other people that truly loved the word of God and it grated against me to know that as a Christian, I couldn't manufacture that. And I only know in retrospect that God kept it back from me so that I had to deal with my own shortcomings. And so that I did not seek to spark a love for God just by studying his word, but by asking him for such things. I wish I could say it happened immediately. It did not. I had a tangential relationship to the scriptures but I still believe that primarily how God worked miracles in the world was to heal the sick. Why would he be concerned about my heart or my attitude towards scripture? And what surprised me most was how slow 
it happened. Most of us who are praying for something to happen want to pray for it for a day or two, maybe a week if we really care about it. And if something is really, truly important to us, maybe a month. But at some point, you know, and you've been there, you go, maybe God just doesn't want this to happen, and he's telling me no. And so we drop it from our prayer cards or our, our requests. But it was one of those things that I couldn't drop. And it was frustrating to me. And I tried to solve my lack of love for the word of God with natural means. Maybe I'll just study it more. Maybe I'll major in Bible in college. Maybe I'll minor in Greek and figure these things out. I didn't figure those things out. It happened in strange ways. It happened in ways I wasn't aware of. And it was only in retrospect when I finally looked back and realized the word of God is no work anymore for me. It is a love. A love that I had to pray for for many, many years. And something that did not happen naturally and something that I can testify to is not where I would have preferred to be. You cannot solve supernatural things with natural means. Seminary is chock full of such fools. You cannot do that. Go to God. And as he expresses here, they said to the woman, as they heard the testimony of Christ, and they watched the new life infilter their world Verse 42, John is calling us, every single person that's reading this, he's calling us to see the same thing. It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard it for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. There is a fine time in our lives when we are new Christians that we can skate by on the experience of others. There is. We can take their word for some things, but at some point we have to grow up. That's just the way of it. At some point it has to become ours. And if it doesn't become ours, we can either get good at pretending or we can leave it behind. What John is calling them to and say the same thing for the Gospel of John, it is no longer merely because the scriptures say he is the savior of the world but upon salvation, upon you who believe and live now, you can look at your own life as part of the testimony of Christ. Not because you've become better behaved, though you have, but because deep inside you, new desires have come up that you know darn well do not come from you. A desire to see God glorified, not a natural desire. On his terms, not on yours, not a natural desire. That you would follow Christ even though it would mean all the suffering in the world. Not a natural desire. That it may cause you to set aside things that you would prefer. Also not a natural desire. These things, the maturities of the Christian life, that over long time 
will demonstrate for you the same testimony that John is talking about, that the one to whom we have entrusted our soul is indeed our faithful creator, maker, and savior. And if he's the savior of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, the implication we will get is he is also the savior of the world. And if he is the savior of the world, then I, like all other people born, am without excuse. Let us uphold Christ no matter what it costs. Friends, we have developed a very unique way of doing church in the West. It's because we've been comfortable for many generations. I don't know if you've paid attention to the world in which we live. We are almost certainly not going to be comfortable in the future. You need to know that now. And if it's going to cost you things that you would rather have than Christ, let me say the same with Christ. If you don't have what it takes to finish the building, don't lay the foundation. If you do not have what it takes to follow Christ when things get difficult, don't follow him. Don't keep up a charade because the reality is that time makes fools of all of us who lie. The reality is that what will come for us will be reality. And if Christ is not our savior, then there is nothing that will keep us following him. Not you making up your minds or anything else. Not accountability partners. As the scriptures say, let us examine ourselves in the face of such narratives and see whether or not we are in the kingdom. That we have a testimony that says, it's not that I have become better behaved. All sorts of false religions can do that. It is that I have loved Christ, his word, his people, and I do not naturally do that. That is the first place it shows up. And I want to encourage us all to do that. Let us pray for such wisdom and such fellowship that it may envelop our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for the wisdom that this woman had at the well. What a perception to see just from such a short conversation the identity of your son. I don't know that I would have picked on it picked up on it in 12 years. Father, we thank you that your word does not allow us to escape into our own self-righteousness, but face us squarely with our need and then face us squarely with our inability to meet that need and then present to us the gospel. And tell us to turn from those things that we are trusting in and instead trust in Christ, who is the author and finisher of such faith. We pray, Father, for these things to be delightful in our eyes. May we seek the testimony that comes from Christ alone. May we seek your glory above all things this time and forevermore. We pray that you make your desires ours in your son's name. Amen.